You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Elahe Azadi, a staff writer covering media for the Washington Post. And my guest today is the comedian, actor, and podcaster, Maz Jabrani. Maz, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was a, a cool introduction. I, I, uh, I was tearing up going down memory lane. Well, that's what we're aiming for. Tears here. Let's just actually just jump right in with your personal story. Um, the introduction video that we just saw, the the story that you told about growing up, what does that tell us about your upbringing and what it was like being an Iranian-American kid growing up in the U.S.? You know, I've always said I never felt American enough and I never felt Iranian enough. And I think a lot of people who come to America at a young age um, from other countries probably have that feeling because you are exposed to American culture. You're exposed to, I, I used to play baseball. I was a big fan of Eddie Murphy's. There was all, all my friends, like I say in the, in the, in that, in that bit, are, a lot of my friends were just American friends. And then I would come home and my parents were these immigrants to me who sounded different and the food smelled different. Don't get me wrong. I love the food. Um, but it was always this thing of um, of a little bit of a struggle and a little bit of being embarrassed about your background. And it takes a while till you're a little older and you start embracing. You go, oh, wow, there's actually a great culture that I've kind of um, uh, tried to uh, ignore and shun it a little bit, a, a little bit. Yeah, and I think in the past you've written or you've talked about how coming to embrace the beauty and traditions of Persian New Year's, Nowruz, allowed you to sort of have this awakening that a lot of other immigrant kids have. Um, what came out of that awakening for you? And is that one that you see other first and second generation Americans experiencing? I think the more important thing for me was when I went to college, I met uh, other Iranian Americans who had grown up in a similar environment as I had. So all of a sudden I saw people that were close like me and then we could we could speak English and Persian together, but still we were American and we still, you know, would make fun of our parents' accents or whatever it might be, but all of a sudden I realized, oh, there's more of us. And I think that kind of, and then I actually gravitate also towards other kids from other backgrounds that might be, uh, you know, East Indian American or, or um, you know, Mexican American. I, I have a, a an affinity with them because I think that, again, we are these, these uh, um, in-betweeners almost. And, and, and then you learn, like you were saying, you learn to then embrace um, the, the stuff from your <clears throat> country of birth. So for example, to this day, when the World Cup happens, if the Iranian soccer team is playing, even though I haven't been in, to Iran for over 20 years and I've grown up my whole life in America, I still root for the Iranian national team. Um, and, uh, and so it's, uh, it's, you find ways to come together culturally. Um, there's, as you said, Persian Nowruz sometimes brings us together. Um, but in my day to day, I would say I'm still very much more involved in the American culture and in the world of American uh, activities and politics and all that. 
Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the in-betweeners, and that's kind of how I thought about it, too, like existing in this in-between space. Um, do you feel like performing around the country and meeting people from all different backgrounds that there are actually a lot of people in that in-between space? And what does that space look like for, for everybody in that? Absolutely. I, I actually, my wife is from India and so our kids are mixed. So I love when I meet other couples that are mixed because I took my in-betweenness and I made it even more in-betweeny by finding a wife from another background. So we have a lot of cultures going on and I like it. My personal favorite when I perform is when I have a mixed audience. I hate having a homogenous audience of any kind, whether it's uh, all, uh, uh, you know, white Americans or all black Americans or Asian Americans or all Persians or all Indians. I love it when we're all together in a room. And what's interesting is when you talk about your experiences, you realize how much we have in common. That's the other thing that really opened my eyes because I used to always say my Persian parents were like this. My Persian parents were like that. And then I remember um, one time I used to do this joke about my grandmother. And the joke was that she used to keep her cash in her bra. And the joke goes, I said, we, we, we always thought she was a size D cup until one day we went to buy a house and she pulled the cash out from her bra and we realized she was a size A cup. And then we looked closer and we realized it was grandpa. So the joke is silly and it's about, you know, your grandmother putting her money in her, in her bra. Well, I did that joke at the Laugh Factory in Los Angeles and there was these two uh, Latina, like I think they were Mexican-American girls. They were falling out of their chairs laughing. And I go, oh my God, Mexican grandmothers put their cash in their bra. And then I was talking to somebody else who was like, my Italian grandmother used to put her cash in. And then someone else, my Jewish grandmother. And I go, oh my God, all grandmothers put their money in their bra. Not all, but a lot. <laughs> it's a worldwide banking system, apparently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, something else that you wrote previously, and I think it was in your book, um, that comedy comes from tragedy and being Iranian in America from 1979 on had been quite tragic. Um, can you talk a little bit more for those tuning in? Like, what what is it about that tragedy and within that experience that drew you to it to talk about it in your comedy? Well, I am such an advocate for immigrants in terms of I feel that we should be very much accepting of immigrants. That's why, for example, the travel ban upset me or, or whenever we have these issues at the border, it upsets me. I'm not saying that our immigration system doesn't need some fixing, but my heart goes out to immigrants because I am an immigrant. I came to America in the late 70s when the revolution was happening in Iran. And I thought to myself when that travel ban happened, I thought what would have happened if when we landed from Iran, fleeing the revolution, if we had been turned back because this travel ban had just been imposed. Well, that could have been dangerous to us. And similarly to those that, that came from Syria or more recently from Afghanistan, or they're coming from Central America, I, I feel that you know we need to be sympathetic to immigrants. And I know that as an Iranian immigrant, when I first came, we're one of the first groups who came to America fleeing the government that had taken over, which was the Islamic Republic of Iran. So we were the ones that were leaving Iran at the time were against that government. And we land here. And then when they take Americans hostage, suddenly we start getting the brunt of it because a lot of Americans didn't have anyone else to beat up or bully. So 
in America, they started calling you effing Iranian. They would beat you up. I was in the fourth grade back then. And uh, kids were, you know, getting, uh, like I said, they'd, they'd, they'd be getting beaten up or bullied, or, or I've heard of other incidents of, of adults being threatened, you know, to be get killed. I mean, it was a real uh, heightened time. And no one, again, this goes back to the American blind patriotism that takes over. For example, we're seeing it now, sometimes when you hear about uh, Asian hate, uh, there's hate crimes against Asian Americans because of the coronavirus, which had nothing to do with these Asian Americans. So similarly for us, we had nothing to do with taking the hostages, but we were the ones getting the hate. And so it feels like we go in cycles and we don't learn, but I try as much as I can to remind people to, to, to you know, embrace immigrants and, um, and, and not blame them for the actions of some other government that has nothing to do with them. So that we were one of the first groups that that happened to. I mean, obviously there was the Japanese as well in the, in, during the World War II in the Japanese internment camps where Americans were being put in internment camps. So it's an ugly thing to see. And um, I think as a kid, I was pretty resilient. Um, I had I was I was good at sports, so that helped me get through it. I also uh, I think I might have turned to comedy a little bit to try and deflect and not get bullied as much. And the third thing I realized later in life, I used to take a lot of candy to school, and I used to give it out to to all the other you know kids. And I realized I learned to bribe my way to friendship at a young age and not get bullied. <laughs> That's a very useful tactic. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, and you've talked before about how your approach to comedy isn't just simply to make people laugh, but also to challenge their perceptions of Middle Easterners. Um, I'm so curious, how do you thread that needle as an artist, and does it feel like a lot of pressure? Listen, I always say my number one goal as a comedian is to be funny. So you know, I have silly jokes and I have political jokes, but ultimately I'm trying to be funny. So that's my first thing. I never set out and go, oh my God, how do I educate people on Middle Eastern people in this joke? I, I don't set out like that. But I do know that being one of the first comedians of Middle Eastern descent to perform in America, I remember early on when I first started, I took a stand-up comedy class and they said, write about what you know. And what I knew was the experience of an Iranian growing up in America. So I started writing about that. And then come to find out that there's just a lot of Americans don't know about that experience. A lot of Americans, all they know about Iranians or Syrians or Afghans or whatever, Egyptians, et cetera, is, is what they hear in the latest news. And that's it. And usually they hear negative things or they see us in a movie trying to blow something up or, you know, it's all it's it, they, they don't have the experiences I had. I grew up with loving parents. I grew up with a lot of uh, traditions going on in our house. My grandparents were always living with us. I grew up with siblings that I loved. I grew up with uh, um, a lot of love and support and the same things that an American kid might have been growing up. I went and saw Star Wars. I went and saw all the Rockies. I, you know, I've, so all of that to say, when I go on stage and I do my stand-up, I don't necessarily have to be talking about a Middle Eastern experience. I just be talking about my own experience. And then if I just sprinkle in the fact that I'm Iranian-American, I think the audience watches and goes, oh, wow, you're Iranian-American and you did go to the movies? Oh, that's, I didn't know you guys went to the movies. So 
Similarly, when I, I'm telling you, when Access of Evil, when we did the Access of Evil comedy tour that came out in 2007, um, and we would go and read people in chat rooms and what they were saying, and it was four of us. We were four Middle Eastern American uh, comedians on American television. I saw somebody write somebody else, and they said, I never knew these people laughed. And what's happening is in the show, we're telling jokes, but the, uh, but the camera cuts to the audience, and you've got audience members that are of Middle Eastern descent laughing. And you go, oh my God, we've never on American television shown Middle Eastern people just having a good time and laughing. And so it kind of blew my mind, but that's part of it. Yeah, they, I wanted to ask you actually about the tour and the things that you learned from the Axis of Evil tour, um, tra traveling around, performing that in a post 9-11 world, the experience of being Middle Eastern in America during that time. But also, what was what did you learn about what it was like to showcase the diversity of that experience? You mentioned there were four comics. You all didn't have the same background nor the same experiences per se. Right. So there was Ahmed Ahmed. He's Egyptian American. Dino Bidala and Aaron Cater are both Palestinian Americans, and we had some similar things going on with um, just again. At the time, uh, Access of Evil was uh, post 9-11. The way it was put together was in, in the year 2000, Mitzi Shore, who was the owner of the comedy store and known as a guru in comedy, in the year 2000, uh, she was watching the news and there was the latest uprising or intifada with the Palestinians and the Israelis. And so she, she being Jewish, said, I feel like there's gonna be a need for a positive voice Muslims and Middle Easterners in the near future. And this is before September 11th. And so she put together a show and she called it the Arabian Nights, where it was me and Ahmed Ahmed and Aaron Cater and whoever else was, you know, close to being Middle Eastern. So we had an Indian, Ameri uh, Indian American, we had a, 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 a white girl who belly danced. It was just, it was a mishmash of stuff. But eventually we took that show and we changed the name to Access to Evil Comedy Tour to lampoon the title that President Bush had given to Iran, Iraq, and North Korea, and started touring with it. And what was interesting was, first of all, people that came to our show kind of knew what to expect. So I don't think we had anybody coming to us to watch our show in a, uh, they, they would come and be surprised that, oh my God, who are these guys? Like they came trying to see probably a left-leaning point of view, a point of view that came from uh, people who have struggled with identity or have had uh, um, their people be, um, um, I will say, blamed for a lot of stuff. So obviously September 11th was 19 hijackers, but all of a sudden we're all thrown into this category. And so um, it was, I think people knew what to expect. Um, what was actually interesting was after September 11th itself, because we, we were at that point still called the Arabian Nights. Mitzi had sent us to go to the La Jolla Comedy Store to do a show. And um, this was maybe like six months, eight months after September 11th. Because originally when September 11th first happened, Mitzi said, let's not do the Arabian Nights show for a while because obviously people were on edge and it was a tragic time in our country. And so she didn't want to be insensitive and she also didn't want to put us in danger by putting up Arabian Nights. But again, eight months later when she goes, okay, now it's time for you guys to get back on stage. And by the way, we were starting to see 
some of the hypocrisy that was happening where the Bush administration was using September 11th to go into Iraq and there was the Patriot Act and all this stuff. So it was our job to talk about these things. She put us on a show um, in La Jolla at the La Jolla Comedy Store and the name Arabian Nights was up. And the manager called us and said, hey, guys, I just got someone calling in saying that they're threatening you. Like the fact that there's Arabian Nights performing here, they threatened to kill you guys. And me and the guys, we kind of had to talk about it. And I remember talking to Ahmed Ahmed and we said, should we do the show? Should we not? And I said, you know, I think it's an empty threat. And jokingly, I said, you know, even if it's a real threat, what a better way to go than on stage? You know, we'll be telling jokes and then we go. <laughs> so um, that was interesting to encounter a little bit. And that night went off without a hitch. And as a matter of fact, um, that club, which is near Camp Pendleton, which, you know, big Marine base down there in, in Southern California, we had a lot of military coming to our shows when we would perform in La Jolla. And a lot of them actually embraced us because they would say, I just came back from Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever they were. And they would say, you know, I never thought I would be able to laugh about these types of issues, but thank you guys for talking about them. So it was interesting to get it from their point of view. Yeah, and the immediate aftermath of 9-11 was especially a fraught time for comedians and all comedy in general. Um, getting back on stage for any comic would have been challenging at that time. Um, were you scared or how did you, I mean, did you just approach it with this sort of lighthearted uh, uh, take or did you feel like this was, you know, I'm called to do this. This is my mission to 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 not let the terrorists win, I guess. <laughs> no, I, you know, this whole thing, it's so funny because again, Americans, we really try to simplify things, right? They did it because yeah. they hate our freedoms. I mean, really, is that what it is? Or is there political stuff going on here? Um, I, when it happened, when September 11th happened, I honestly felt that was the day that uh, comedy died, kind of like the day the music died. I, I thought, how could you ever be funny again? It was so tragic. Um, New York held a dear place in my heart simply because um, that's where we first landed when we first came from Iran to America. So I remember New York of the late 70s and I've always just loved New York and then obviously Washington and, and it was just it was such a it was such a crazy time with, with the 20th anniversary recently passing. I, I watched a, a lot of documentaries and was just reminded of how hectic and crazy and 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 sad it all was and so i really i thought i could never be funny again and so that was that tuesday and the comedy clubs always always stay open the comedy store laugh factory they're always open even on christmas i've i've performed at the comedy store on a christmas uh, eve uh, or christmas day night you know tw 25th and and there's been moments where there's like three people in the audience cuz everyone's home with their families um, but obviously when September 11th happened, the clubs all closed and that was the first time I'd ever seen them closed. And, um, the club remained closed until I think Friday when they decided to open up, because as you said, there was a push to try to get back to normalcy, to not let the terrorists win. But also I think people needed laughter to release some of that stress. And so... I know that that Friday night, uh, the the clubs were full and people were laughing loudly. But the truth is, I didn't get a chance to go back to the clubs that weekend because, again, Mitzi, I think, was protective a little bit and didn't want to put us up on stage um, for, because of our backgrounds. And so 
the first time I performed, I think after September 11th, was at a private event that I'd been booked to perform at. And I tried to back out of it because I called them. I said, I don't know if I can be funny. And they said, no, please come. I said, well, you know, I'm Middle Eastern American and there's this anti-Middle Eastern sentiment right now. And they said, no, no, come. The, the, the host's wife is Turkish. They'll embrace you. You'll be fine. So I said, all right. So I went and I'll be honest with you. I just remember, whereas maybe before September 11th, I would start my act by saying, hi, my name is Maz Jobrani. You know, what kind of name is Maz Jobrani? It's an Iranian name or whatever. And then, so right out the gate, I would indicate I'm Iranian and then get into it. This show that was the first show after September 11th, I recall slowly dipping my toe into my Iranianness. So I think I had like, three or four minutes at the top that didn't mention anything about my ethnicity. And then I think at some point I basically was like, anyway, in case you're wondering, uh, I was born in Iran. And then I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm not too happy about that either right now, you know, and then just try to really let them know whose side I was on. I mean, I went out and bought an American flag back then. I mean, that's how crazy, partially because I, I, I didn't want people attacking me. So I had an American flag in the back of my car I remember pulling up at the comedy store and some of the comics were making fun of me. They're like, Maz Jobrani's got a flag so they don't attack him. I was like, you better believe I do. <laughs> it's a nice insurance policy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you mentioned this depiction of Middle Easterners on television and, and just even seeing people in the audiences laugh. Um, in the special that, that you all recorded. Uh, you also wrote a book some years ago, I'm Not a Terrorist, but I played one on TV. Um, how do you assess the current state of representation of Middle Easterners in pop culture when you look at your success and that of others? You know, I think we've come a long way. So I first got inspired to be an actor and be a comedian because of Eddie Murphy. Then as a kid, when I was in seventh grade, um, in eighth grade, I, I was in plays. I played Little Abner, who is this country kid. Um, I later on in high school, we did a rendition of Batman where I was Batman. So in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, I'll go to Hollywood. I get to play all these parts. Well, you get here and once you, they find out you're Middle Eastern, and they go, oh, can you say I will kill you in the name of Allah? And you're like, uh, can I play the doctor? They go, sure. And then you can hijack the hospital. You're like, no, you're not getting the point. So those were the roles starting out. And I took a few and I didn't feel good doing them. So I stopped. Um, but more recently, I would say you have shows like Rami, which is a great example of uh, a guy who's Muslim American, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a great show. It's, talk, it's about him trying to live his life as a single guy in New York City, basically. Um, uh, you've got shows uh, like, I will say, I mean, you know, Mindy Kaling isn't Iranian or Middle Eastern, but still it's like of that world, Aziz Ansari, Hassan Minaj, uh, Mo Amr, um, you know, more and more we're starting to see this start to, you know, get, get, get projects from these points of views that in my opinion are bringing us a little bit more and more into mainstream. You know, I would ultimately love to have a, like a blackish with a Middle Eastern family or something where more people are seeing it because ultimately I think when we see it, when, when Americans who don't know Middle Easterners because they don't live around them, when they see that depicted in a film or television program and it's entertaining and it's fun and they're lovable and likable, 
I really do think it makes a difference and makes them uh, want to um, embrace these people or accept these people more than if they don't see representation on film and television. Yeah, and um, in a recent special of yours, you you tell a joke about having to perform. You know, you travel all around the world, you perform all around the world, and you tell a joke about having to perform for a government censor who has to approve your act because of the country that you're in. Um, and I just thought that was so, well, it was very funny, but also given that experience, I'm assuming it happened to you, um, I'm just interested to hear your perspective on the concept of cancel culture within comedy, which is you know, the idea that there's a pushback to certain kinds of materials or jokes, and this is akin to censorship, you know, as someone who has dealt with like government censors. Yeah, that was in Kuwait. It was very interesting, and and it was kind of silly because I go, what? He wants me. He wanted me to perform it for him, but it, but he didn't speak English, and I'm going, what? And and so it was very silly, and he was just sitting there, and I was just walking around the stage doing my act, which by the way I think was a different act than the act I was going to do the next night. It it was very kind of loosely done. Um, but I always say in America we have our own. You know, when I first started touring in the Middle East, you would go, we did with Access of Evil, we went to the Middle East, we did five countries, it was sold out, it was kind of like rock and roll. I always say like we flew in 2007 or 2008, we flew from the States to the Middle East and I feel like over the Atlantic we turned into the Beatles because once we landed in <clears throat> Dubai at the time, they said, oh, there's a press conference. And I go, press conference? Who's coming to our press conference? Well, lo and behold, there's like, 30 news outlets are asking questions. What's it like doing comedy in the US? What's it like living under Bush? What's it like? Oh my God. And then we did 27 sold out shows in 30 days in Lebanon and Jordan, just all over the place. And, um, but wherever we went, for the most part, they would say, you can talk about whatever you want. Just no sex, no religion, no politics. Those were the things in the Middle East. And the joke was, well, then hello and good night or salam alaikum and alaikum salam, you know. But I always said that in America, we also had our limitations because I did a show on Comedy Central back then called uh, Premium Blend, where comedians do about five or six minutes each. And in order to do the show, you have to submit your set to the, you know, standards and practice people. And they came back to me and in my act, I mentioned some products. I didn't talk badly about them. I just mentioned them like 7-Eleven and Mercedes and a few others. Right. They came back, they go, you can't mention 7-Eleven, Mercedes or these because they might be sponsors. Can you change the car and the store? And so all that to say, we also have like for the longest time, I would say, you know, in the Middle East, God is God. In America, tide is God. And so <laughs> we do, we, we do have our, um, limitations i mean i've been i've i've been you know uh, uh you know lost a job because i had the, a tweet that was a retweet about uh uh chase bank and they were like oh we don't want you because you retweeted it and i go that's it so we have that happening in our uh country as well but when you go to cancel culture and this whole thing of you know uh, one group being upset about a joke. I think there's a couple of things. One is, and I'll make this quick. <clears throat> one is that if it really is a learning moment, we can really try to learn from it. So I have kids. And if my kids say, dad, people don't use that word anymore. 
I have a choice. I could either say, well, you guys are just, you know, you, you guys are woke, too woke, and I'm not going to listen to you. Or I could choose to change with the times and say, I'm going to start stop using those words. Um, ultimately, you laugh and die. I'm sorry, you die and you live and die with the laughs. So if the audience is laughing and people are coming to see you, then I feel like, okay, I'm doing something right here, at least for my audience. But if I start getting people groaning or looking at me or somebody comes up to me after a show and says, hey, you know that joke you did about X, Y, and Z? I'm from that community and it really bothers me. Well, then I have some thinking to do and maybe I, I, maybe I try to sympathize a little bit. So it's a fine line, um, but I would say that we've been, you know, cancel culture I don't think is necessarily new. I mean, again, under the Trump administration, when I would do Trump jokes, even to this day, if I mention the name Trump on stage, quite often there's a Trump supporter in the back going, you can't make fun of him, man. What are you doing? And I'm like, He's the president. He was the president. You know, we we're supposed to make fun of him, but they want to cancel you. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, thank you, Maz, so much for speaking with me. Thank you for having me on. It was uh, fun to talk to you. Thanks, Elahe. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.